Father, we thank you for, again, this time that you've called your people together to hear from you through your word, by your spirit that gives us understanding. Thank you for granting us ears to hear and eyes to see. We pray for those who do not have ears to hear and eyes to see, that you would grant them repentance and faith, open their deaf ears and blind eyes to see and behold your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and to be born again by your Spirit, to understand these glorious truths that are life-transforming, and bring you from death to life, out of darkness into light, and the power of your word in us and through us. And we thank you for saving us through your Son. And we pray for those who are here that don't know Christ, that you would work even in their hearts and minds now to hear your word and hear your truth, and that would bring them to submission under it, that they would be known as those who were dead in their trespasses and sins, that they would find all their hope in you. And we pray these things in your son's name. Amen. In Romans 9, verses 1 through 5, Apostle Paul writes, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption of sons, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Entitled this sermon, A Heart of Love. And this is really Paul's heart of love in light of Israel's heartbreaking unbelief. Despite all the unique advantages that they were given, privileges, that go beyond any other nation, we still find Israel here rejecting the Messiah, turning their backs to God. We have to ask, why why Israel? Why did God choose Israel? Why did God choose Israel out of all the other nations to be his special and unique nation? Well, Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8 says, For you are holy people to Yahweh your God. Yahweh your God has chosen you to be a people for his own treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Yahweh did not set his affection on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but because Yahweh loved you. Out of God's own sovereign love and the good pleasure of his will, he determined to set his affection upon the nation of Israel. This was unconditional. And why did God choose the nation of Israel? What were they to do? Well, God raised up Israel to be witnesses about him to the nations. They were to proclaim the existence and excellencies of the one true and living God. They were to make God known in this world. They are those who were to preserve and transmit God's word as well. Romans chapter 3 verse 2 says, They were entrusted with the oracles of God. They were entrusted with divine truth revealed through the prophets to them, and they were to steward his word and to proclaim it, again, to all the nations, to the world. 
You are also to be a demonstration of God's judgment of sin, of God's justice and his righteous anger toward those who would refuse to repent or those who would rebel or disobey him. And we see this in Israel's history. Israel continued in patterns of wickedness. The Lord would respond with various forms of divine judgment, which included drought and famine and plague, pestilence, invasion, exile. This was evident to the surrounding nations as God would act upon his chosen nation, Israel, in these ways. They were also to be a demonstration, not of God's, not only of God's judgment of sin, but also of God's grace toward those who would repent from sin. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7 says, Yahweh, Yahweh God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. So we see that it's a demonstration of God's grace towards the nation as well, that he will forgive their iniquity, transgression, and sin. We also know that God chose Israel to be a nation that would demonstrate his faithfulness. If you turn to Romans 11, verses 25 to 29, it says there, For I do not want you, brothers, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, he will remove ungodliness from Jacob, and this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of their the fathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God is a faithful God to his chosen people, Israel, and he will fulfill all of his promises to them. What God promised to Abraham and to his descendants, he will fulfill despite, despite Israel's unfaithfulness towards him. Because of God's unfailing, faithful love towards his people. God chose Israel to be the nation through which he would reveal the Messiah. God determined that the Messiah would come through Israel and that Israel would point the world to the Messiah. Also, as God's chosen people, they were to represent him as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's Exodus 19. A priest is one who mediates between God and men, who intercedes for sinners. The Lord chose Israel to be his intermediary, providing even a sacrificial system, priestly ordinances, by which sinners could approach a holy God in worship. Those sacrifices, ordinances, ultimately pointed to the perfect Lamb of God who would be slain and the great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah who would come through Israel. God raised up the nation Israel to be a platform from which he would therefore magnify who he is. They were to make him known. It's also the nation Israel to be a platform through which he would reveal his word, his sufficient, authoritative, perfect word. It's also through which the promise of the Messiah would come. They demonstrate the way of salvation. They point to the Messiah. They preserve the line of the Messiah. And they show the entire plan of redemption. And in using Israel in this way and choosing Israel for these purposes, God gives them these promises and privileges which are to facilitate accomplishing his purposes for them because of his love for them. But throughout Israel's history, we see moments of faithfulness, which are few, but sadly more of Israel's rejection of God and the gospel. And the pinnacle of that being when the Jews would hand over their Messiah to be crucified. 
And so the question is, where does that leave Israel? What about God's plan, his great promises and purposes for Israel that we read about in the Old Testament? The primary question that is answered really in this larger section in Romans, of Romans 9 through 11, is whether God is faithful. Is God faithful to keep his word to Israel? Romans 9 verse 6 says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. Romans 11.29 that we just read, For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. And there are many other questions that are raised and answered as well in these three chapters, Romans 9, 10, and 11. What is the relationship between Israel and the church? That kind of determines what church you go to. How are people saved? What does God's sovereign election mean? What about human responsibility? Do we play any part in this, or are we just merely robots? What is God's plan for Israel? Why doesn't Israel believe? Is God done with Israel? And a bigger question, how does this impact the world? Why haven't more of God's chosen people believed in their Messiah? Romans 9 through 11 addresses and answers these questions and many more. You might think that these three chapters have nothing to do with you, but they do. And they have everything to do with our God and the trustworthiness of his word and his promises. There are great theological, practical implications for every Christian believer, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, as it concerns God's plan of redemption and our salvation and our evangelization. In Romans 5-8, through the last major section in Romans, Paul argues that the believer's future glorification is certain, that we are absolutely secure in Christ because of his finished work. We've been justified by grace through faith, declared right by God through what his son has done. And so we have a certain hope that is anchored in the eternal love of God, which is eternal, sovereign, irrevocable. And he ends chapter 8 by saying that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. But if that's true, and it is, then what happened to God's chosen people, Israel, the Jews? Why have a majority of them rejected the Messiah and his gospel and continue to do so this day? In these verses, Paul shares his heart of love for the nation of Israel so that Israel's unbelief would be seen in light of God's sovereign plan. Israel's rejection of the gospel grieves Paul's heart. And we'll see both the reality of that and the reason for that. Then we'll look at the implications of that for our lives today. And first we'll look at the reality, verses 1 through 3. Again, Paul says, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul begins by strongly asserting that he is speaking the truth. In fact, in the Greek, truth is the very first word in the sentence, and it's placed in the front to emphasize it. Paul says in verse 1, truth, I am telling. And why does Paul need to say that? Because this is really what is on his heart. 
He's communicating how personal this is to him. He's communicating his heart of love for Israel. And when he says, I'm telling the truth, that means that what he is saying is genuine. It's sincere. It's dependable. And notice that it doesn't just say, I'm telling the truth, but he adds, I'm telling the truth in Christ. This adds gravity. He says, what I'm about to say, I'm saying to you in the full awareness of my relationship to Jesus Christ and even of his presence as I say these things. Paul is saying, Christ is my witness. Keep in mind, Christ is omniscient. He knows everything. He knows all things. He knows Paul's heart. And Paul is saying, as my witness, this all-knowing Christ who searches my heart knows that I am speaking the truth. I'm speaking the truth in love. In Romans 1 verse 9, Paul makes a similar statement. And he says there, For God, whom I serve in my spirit, in the gospel of his Son, is my witness, as to how without ceasing I make mention of you, always in my prayers. Paul was an honest man, a man of integrity, a truth-telling man, a man who kept his word, a man who prayed when he said, I would pray for you. And what this reveals is that he really cared about them and that his heart was filled with love for all people. He really cared about the people of Israel and he calls Christ here as his witness. Paul makes a positive assertion and then he makes a negative denial to make his point absolutely clear. He says, not only am I telling the truth, but he says, I am not lying. He's not speaking falsehood and neither is he attempting to deceive anybody with what he's saying. The word used for lying is the Greek word pseudomai. And that's where we get the word pseudonym. It's a fictitious name. Pseudo meaning not genuine, fake, pretend. So Paul is not lying, nor being insincere or deceiving. And Paul also adds in the second half of verse 1, my conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. That is another witness being called to testify that what he is saying is absolutely truthful. And this witness is his conscience, which is a God-given moral evaluator. And here it testifies with him in the Holy Spirit, meaning that it is influenced and controlled by the Holy Spirit and therefore is properly informed by the Spirit-inspired Word of God. His own conscience testifies with him and to him that he is speaking the truth and not lying. He has a clear conscience before God about the truthfulness of what he's about to say to them. Paul is making sure that no one misses or misunderstands what he's saying because of his deep affection for them. Paul does his speaking, but Christ, God, the Holy Spirit, his conscience are all involved and are all affirming and testifying together that what he's saying is true. And so Paul must have something important to share, something personal to share. And what is it? We look at verse 2. That I have great sorrow. And the word great is megas, which is mega sorrow. An unceasing grief in my heart. He really loves them. You are not going to have great sorrow or unceasing grief about things that don't matter to you. You are not going to have great sorrow and unceasing grief about things that you don't care about. You're not going to have great sorrow and unceasing grief about things that you don't love or people that you don't love. 
Paul is not against the Jews, even if they are against him. Remember in Acts, in Paul's missionary journeys, I'll just point out one occasion, Acts 14, verse 19. It says, But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and after winning over the crowds and stoning Paul, they were dragging him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. The Jews were trying to stone Paul to death. It was the Jews that were often opposing him. And though he's called an apostle to the Gentiles, in every city in which Paul entered for the first time, he would search out the synagogues. Where are the synagogues in this town? I must go there to first preach to the Jews about their Messiah. And in this account in Acts 14, right after he gets stoned, he goes back into the city. And then he leaves the next day. He goes into Derby. He preaches the gospel. Many disciples are made. And then they're supposed to go back to their sending church. But they decide to go the long way. And they travel back through the same towns where he was persecuted and opposed and stoned because he wanted to encourage the disciples there and give them hope to press on and to persevere. This is Paul's love for people and even for the Jews who opposed him. Second Corinthians 11, 23 and 28 says, In far more labors, far more imprisonments, in beatings without number, in frequent danger of death, it says, Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, and that's the stoning in Acts 14. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in desolate places, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brothers. I've been in labor and hardship in many sleepless nights in starvation and thirst, often hungry and cold and without enough clothing. And apart from such external things, there's a daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. And that's true of Paul's life as well. Paul defended the Christian gospel against the Judaizers, against those who championed the law, against those who insisted that Gentiles keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. In other words, Paul was fighting the predominant view of Judaism in the first century. And so, of course, he would be a target. His defense of the gospel earned him the reputation of actually being anti-Jewish. And so here he wanted to make it clear to both the Jewish and Gentile believers in Rome that he still loved his people. He loved Israel. His ministry to the Gentiles in no way demonstrates his lack of concern for his fellow countrymen. His heart is truly pained over their unbelief. And that's what the word sorrow means. It's a pain of spirit, a great heaviness, a great weight that was upon him. And he says, I have unceasing grief in my heart. It affects him to the very core of who he is. The word grief means mental pain or distress. And this grief in his heart is unceasing. It's continual. It's unending. Paul's concern for the Jewish people is real. And it's constantly on his heart and mind. His pain, it's pain in his soul. And that's really the tension that we as Christians, believers, ought to have as well. This constant, unending joy in our relationship with God because of His Son. But at the same time, this constant, unending grief in our hearts towards those who don't have a relationship with God. This is the reality of Paul's heart of love for Israel. 
Not only does he call Christ God, his conscience, the Holy Spirit as witnesses, and not only does he share the burden and pain that is causing him in his heart, but he's even willing to go to great lengths to do something about it, if it were possible to do so. Notice verse 3. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Now, obviously, this is not possible, which is why Paul says, I could wish, and not I do wish. Even the verb tense implies a hypothetical situation. In other words, Paul is not actually saying, God, damn me, so that they can be saved. Paul is not literally expressing this wish since he has just stated in Romans chapter 8 his conviction that nothing could separate him from God's love in Christ, not even ourselves. It's not possible. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and no separation from the love of God for those who are in Christ Jesus. The believer's salvation is eternally secure in Christ. What Paul is doing here is entertaining such a wish if it could possibly be granted. What this does show is Paul's heart. If it were permissible, this would be his prayer. This would be his wish. And also, by raising the possibility that he himself might be a curse for their sake, he's actually indicating the current state and condition of his Jewish brothers, his brethren. They are accursed, separated from Christ. And that is why he is in great sorrow. That is why he has unceasing grief in his heart. Paul says in Romans 10, verse 1, Brothers, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. He longs for and desires and prays for their salvation. He says in Romans 11, verse 14, as he describes his ministries to the Gentiles, that perhaps God will even use that. And he says, if somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. This was Paul's heart. Unrelenting passion for the salvation of his people. This is also true of Moses and his heart for his people. Exodus 32, you have the golden calf incident where Moses is on the mountain while Aaron is consenting and constructing this golden calf and they fall down and worship it, not as a replacement of Yahweh, but as Yahweh itself. And God is rightly angered and it says in Exodus 32, 30 and 30, 32, Now it happened on the next day that Moses said to the people, You yourselves have committed a great sin, but now I'm going up to Yahweh. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Then Moses returned to Yahweh and said, Alas, this people has committed a great sin, and they have made gods of gold for themselves. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, blot me out from your book which you have written. Moses is not saying, look, I want to be with my Jewish brothers more than I want to be with you, God. So if you're not going to save them, don't save me. That's not what he's saying. He's offering himself as an exchange. He's saying, if you won't forgive them, then don't forgive me and forgive them instead. And God says in verse 33, Exodus 32, Yahweh said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. And the book here is referring to the book of the living. It's the book of life. It's the book in which the names of the righteous are written. God says no to Moses. But this shows his heart as he pleads for their forgiveness. And if 
permissible, he would take their place. This is the heart of someone who loves people, modeled by Moses, modeled by Paul. And that's what we see in Romans 9, verse 3. That if Paul could be, he could himself be accursed, that means damned to hell, cut off, separated from Christ forever. If Paul could, he would give up his salvation for his brothers, his kinsmen according to the flesh. This is a reference to the Jewish people, to the Israelites. Kinsmen is a way of referring to his fellow countrymen. And Paul is Jewish, and he identifies himself with his people here. What causes great sorrow and unceasing grief in Paul's heart is that so many of his fellow Jews are unsaved. This has to do with Israel's unbelief. Israel's unbelief concerned Paul's heart. And Paul here is expressing the reality of his heart of love for Israel, that if he could, he would give up his own salvation if that were possible. If that would mean salvation would come to his people, Israel. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. What Paul could never, ever have done for his people, Jesus did. For our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 Paul could only wish to be a curse and separated from Christ to save others. Christ actually became a curse to save his people from their sins. What Paul is describing and modeling here is Christ-like, sacrificial love for people. A love that wants to see people come to know God. Paul's love for Israel is personal, it's genuine, it's humble, it's sincere. They are his kinsmen according to the flesh, which is why their unbelief is heartbreaking to Paul. Israel's rejection of the gospel grieves Paul's heart unceasingly. This is the reality of his heart of love for them. Next, we'll see the reason, verses 4 and 5. It says, Who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption of sons, and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises, whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. The reason why Paul's is heartbroken over them is because of their special relationship to God, because of Israel's unique advantages, because of all that they had been given and had access to. Verse 4 connects back to verse 3, clarifies who his kinsmen according to the flesh are. It says, who are Israelites. He begins by saying they are Israelites. This signifies, identifies the name of God's people. It describes their relationship to God and his unique promises to them. It means those who belong to Israel. Where did the name Israel come from? It was given by God to Jacob. It means a prince with God. Later, this word Israel was applied to his descendants. And it describes the descendants of Jacob as those God especially chose to be his very own, to belong to him and to be a part of his plan. What this is saying is that these are God's special people, uniquely called by God to be his own. They aren't like every other nation. They have a set-apart, unique relationship with Yahweh. Paul goes on to say, to whom belongs the adoption of sons? In the Old Testament, this word adoption described 
the Jewish nation as a whole, not the individual members within it. The nation was adopted by God. That's why you have in Exodus 4, verse 22, Yahweh saying, Israel, referring to the nation, Israel is my son, my firstborn. In Deuteronomy 14, 1, it says, You are the sons of Yahweh, your God. And in Jeremiah 31, 9, it says, I am a father to Israel, referring to the nation. I'm a father to the nation Israel. And so the adoption here is when God in the Old Testament adopted the nation of Israel as his own. But it did not mean a promise of salvation to every single Israelite. That's what Paul is going to argue in the rest of Romans chapter 9 through 11. But they are his nation. And he adopted them and brought them into covenant with himself. And he blessed them. They are privileged as a nation. Privileged to have his protection, his care, his provision, his oversight. They were uniquely set apart to be his witness nation to the world. To reveal who he is. And Paul goes on and he says, and the glory. What is the glory? It's the Shekinah glory. This is speaking about the presence of God among his people. And that was not given to any other nation or people. God dwelt with them. He was in their midst. God was in their tabernacle, in their temple, in the Holy of Holies. When they came out of Egypt, he gave them his glory and led them. It was the glory that was theirs and it demonstrated that God dwelt with them and that God was with them. Notice also, it says, and the covenants, they were recipients of the covenants. They were the nation to be blessed, and they were the nation to be a blessing to others. No other nation was given the covenants. Other nations would enter into it through them, but it was given to them. God promised them a, a nation through Abraham. God promised them blessing through Moses. God promised them eternal glory and a future ultimate king in Christ through David. And even a new covenant was given to them. Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36, God promised a new covenant that would come, that he would take away their heart of stone, give to them a heart of flesh, that he would sprinkle clean water upon them and make them clean. He would write his law in their hearts and they will obey him. God made covenants too and with Israel for their blessing. Paul adds in verse 4, in the giving of the law, they were given God's law and given the privilege of being Again, this witness nation that was to live according to the law that was distinct and separate from every other nation around them. Romans 2.20 says that they have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. Romans 3.1 says, then what advantage has the Jew? And Paul says in the very next verse, great in every respect. First of all, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. This is the law of God that was given to Israel, the law of Moses given to him at Sinai. And Paul goes on to say in the temple service, this refers to the whole ceremonial sacrificial system. In other words, they were given a system whereby they could have access to God. All that they could ever need for access to God was given to them and supplied for them. All they ever needed for worship was given to them. And the end of verse 4 says, and the promises. This refers to the many promises God gave to his people, but especially to the Messianic promises. Promises referring to Christ. These promises point forward to the saving work of Christ and look forward to his coming kingdom. And this was their hope. God gave them these promises. And to give you a summary of Israel's unique advantages, they enjoyed a special privilege with God as his chosen people, adopted by him. They were given his glorious presence to dwell within their midst. He gave them covenants and gave them his law that he might enter into blessing, the blessing of obedience. 
He gave them temple services, ceremonies, sacrifices, priests, that they might enter into communion with him and worship him, come into his presence, fully experience his goodness, and have hope of a coming Messiah. And in verse 5, Paul says, Whose are the fathers? The fathers or patriarchs is a reference to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants. And why is that important? Because the promises were made to the fathers and their descendants. So to be descendants with theirs was to be potential recipients of these blessings, of these promises. And ultimately, Christ would come from this line. Paul says, And from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. This means Christ was born a Jew according to the flesh. He's an Israelite. He comes from their line. That's his human lineage. But as to his deity, he came from God. That is his divine descent. And Paul here is explicitly stating that Jesus Christ is God. Israel had many unique advantages. How could they ever reject it? How could they fail to respond? They were given everything. How could they not experience this blessing? The answer is really simple. It's due to their unbelief. And this is Paul's major concern. He loves them because they are his kinsmen. And he has a personal connection and relationship to them. And they are also God's people. And God has a unique relationship with them. And Paul's heart breaks for them because his heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Paul began with his own grief over Israel's rejection. He explained his passion and his compassion to see them come to Christ. He ended by mentioning their spiritual advantages, which makes their rejection of the Messiah even more shocking. The reality and the reason now the implications. You may be privileged, but lost. You may be privileged, but lost. How could the Jewish people have had so many spiritual advantages still reject the gospel and reject their Messiah? For us, how could someone grow up in a Christian home, have Christian parents, Go to a good church. Hear the Bible faithfully taught week after week. Hear the gospel proclaimed. Have access to countless sermons, books, blogs, and still reject Jesus. It's because those things don't make you a Christian. It's not by works, and neither by upbringing or by association. No one can believe for you. Faith is not transferred. Faith is individually received by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We also see here that Israel's rejection of the gospel should not be our rejection of Israel. Israel's rejection of the gospel should not be our rejection of Israel or of the people around us who reject the gospel. We are to have a deep concern and compassion for the unconverted. And what our conviction upon the truth and our compassion should lead us to 
is loving confrontation with the hope of the gospel. We have to keep in mind that love and compassion does not compromise truth. Love and compassion does not compromise truth. And that conviction does not negate compassion. And also when we study these verses, we can't just look at the nation as a whole without considering the people that make up the nation. Yes, the nation as a whole may have turned their back to God, but that is because the people have done that. How are we to respond? Well, how did the Apostle Paul respond to that? I want us to consider the creation account. Why? Because I want to highlight and reinforce something that we should not forget. Something that rightly forms and shapes our worldview and perspective in relation to God and in relation to all people, whether believers or unbelievers. Out of all creation, only man is created in the image of God. We are fundamentally image bearers of God, uniquely and intentionally designed representatives and reflectors of God in this world. But not only that, we are created with inherent dignity, worth, and value that is to be respected and protected. And with that in mind, I want us to consider another aspect of creation that relates to that, and that is beauty. What is beauty? A seminary professor has said, quote, beauty is a transcendental quality, meaning that beauty isn't located or limited to the object in which you find it, but true beauty is always pushing you beyond the object itself. So if I find beauty in the mountains or in the ocean and I consider it and see it properly, what it does is it pushes my heart and my mind beyond the mountains or the ocean before me. It's transcendental and it's asking me to consider greater things than the object itself. Another characteristic of beauty which is important is that it relates to both form and content. And beauty goes hand in hand with truth and goodness. Where where true beauty is found, there's truth and goodness. When you see true beauty, rest assured that nearby is some expression of what is true and what is good. And so bringing that all together, the beautiful, the good, and the true, as a person who has faith in God, beauty is a downstream expression of who God is himself. That is why truth and beauty and goodness go together because they are part of his nature. And that takes us back to the transcendental nature of beauty. It always pushes you to a contemplation that is higher than the object itself. Close quote. Likewise, when you consider creation and beauty, when you see people, how do you view people? How do you view those around you? How do you view those who reject the gospel? How do you view those who hate you? Do you go beyond and see them as those created in the image of God, those who are accountable to God, those who have inherent dignity, beauty in, in, the, in and of themselves? First Peter 2.17 says we are to honor all people, all people. James 3.9 is speaking about our tongues and our speech. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. As Christians... Our lives, our interactions with people, 
our engagement with the world should be different, and it must be different. There should be a greater compassion and less condemnation and complaining. The image and likeness of God in us points to the God in whose image we are made. When we understand this about mankind and couple that with our sin nature, it should lead us to see and view people in a different light. There should be a proper compassion that is according to truth. This also ties into the beauty that goes with all of God's commands for us because they are good and true. There's beauty in obedience to God. There's beauty when the gospel goes forth from our lips. Romans 10.15 says, How beautiful are the feet of those who proclaim good news of good things. If we go back to Romans 8, if we believe in the love of God for us, then we will be compelled to love people with the truth, beginning with Romans chapter 9. Paul's deep compassion and passion for his fellow Jews is his burden and concern for their souls. There's clear questions we can ask ourselves. Do we care about the salvation of people? Is your heart, Matthew 28 and the Great Commission, are we praying for one another and for those who do not know Christ? It's been said that prayer is one of the best ways to love one another. It's also one of the best ways to love others. Not only are we praying, but have we opened our mouths to actually share the gospel with people? The Apostle Paul was a man who knew great sorrow, unceasing anguish over the lost condition and unbelief of the people that he loved. We have to remember Paul was a recipient of grace just like we are. He's a great persecutor of the church. And the Lord transformed him into a great proclaimer of the truth. He fully understands where his people are, what they believe, how they're ignorant of the full truth. They're seeking to go to God by their own righteousness. But he knows righteousness is only found in Christ, and which is why we proclaim the gospel, which is the only power for salvation, because in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul loved his people in spite of their hatred for him. And that's hard for us. But we must view them as image bearers of God who are lost, blind, and need the gospel. He expressed his love for them personally, and he also expressed his love for them by being caring enough to confront them with the truth. Everywhere Paul went, he brought the gospel with him. He may have, he may have fleed and fled from places, but the gospel didn't leave him. He continued to do what he was called to do wherever he was led. The truth about salvation, the truth about the law, the truth about God's plan, the truth about their religious pride, the truth about their condition, the truth about their unbelief, the wrath of God, he proclaimed to them lovingly, calling them out of it to follow Christ. Paul had a heart of love for Israel because of their unbelief. He wanted them to know the truth about God and for them to be saved. Who is it in our life or our lives that 
comes to mind. Begin by praying for them. Pray for opportunities to engage them in these very conversations and share the full gospel with them, the wrath of God and the grace and love and mercy of God. It is the word of God, the word of Christ that saves by his spirit according to God's will. The love of Christ for us and our commitment to Christ and our conviction upon truth should compel within us this genuine compassion for people. 2 Corinthians 5.14 says, For the love of Christ controls us. Verse 20 of 2 Corinthians 5, So then, with the love of Christ controlling us, because Christ has died for us, so then we are ambassadors for Christ, as God is pleading through us. God is pleading through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We've been given a ministry of reconciliation. We must proclaim the word of reconciliation, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Begins by praying for people and having a genuine heart of compassion and passion for their souls to see what it is that is blinding them from the truth. Remember, our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against them. We know their condition. We know the hope that they have is only found in Jesus Christ. So may we be faithful to proclaim the good news with compassion, with love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Paul's example of humility and compassion for his people. We thank you even more for your son and his example. That he came down from heaven to earth to die in the place of sinners, to save and redeem them from the wrath of God. Father, as recipients of this great blessing and mercy and grace and love, this love that is never failing, irrevocable, eternal and sovereign, help us to be those who are controlled by this love, your love for us, that we would be faithful ambassadors for you as you are pleading through us that we would beg others on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to you because righteousness is only found in your Son and that is what everyone lacks. Father, thank you for your word. Pray for your word through your spirit to do what it intends to do in our lives this day. Help us to bring to mind those that are near to us and dear to us that are lost. And help us to begin by calling upon you to save them and opening our mouths to proclaim to them the great gospel. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.